This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Julian, Levi, Emmelyn, Caleb J., and Rosemary. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Julian, who asks, Why are singing and music so important in Christianity? Well, Julian, the easy answer is because the Bible tells us to worship God in song. In Ephesians 5 verse 19, Paul says to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And in Colossians 3.16, he repeats this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And of course, we have an entire songbook in Scripture, the book of Psalms. Also, God has made us so that singing and music are important to all human culture. We've been singing ever since the book of Genesis, and in our music you find some of the deepest expressions of the human heart. We've talked a lot about the importance of music in worship in our sister podcast, Hearing the Music, where I talk with Delta David Geyer, conductor of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, about the sacred music of Bach. So, if you want to hear more about this, you should give that a listen. And now Levi wants to know, what book of the Bible can you learn the most from? Well, this is such a good question, and the answer is, it depends. Of course, God gave us all the books because we need all of them. Still, at different points in your life, you'll benefit from what one book has to say, while at other times in life, you'll find that a different book speaks to you. For example, there's a period in a believer's life where I think the wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes can really help you figure out practical questions about how to live, how to make wise choices, and how to think about the world. But the same person may find at another point in life that the epistles of Paul, with their rich doctrinal lessons, are what they really need. And again, that same person later on might realize that the mysteries revealed in the book of Hebrews are are really what they want to delve into. Personally, I found that my appreciation for different books of the Bible grows as I mature. And Levi, I think you're going to discover the same thing. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmelyn. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmelyn's question. Could someone learn the gospel and want to follow God, but not be saved because they weren't chosen or predestined? What I love about this question, Emmelyn, is that it takes us to the heart of a problem that a lot of people have with the Bible's teaching on election and predestination. If it's true that God chooses and predestines his people for salvation, they object, then doesn't that make salvation really unfair? It sounds like a party you show up to only to find that you're not on the guest list. 
What if someone hears the good news and wants to follow Christ, then finds out, too bad for you, you weren't predestined? As I've said before, I think a lot of the blame for these feelings about election and predestination lie with the people who believe in them but don't explain them very well. Another problem is that we treat the doctrine of election as if it's a philosophical conundrum. In other words, we try to reason about it in the abstract instead of studying it in the context that the Bible puts it in. But there's another challenge, too. We tend to assume that our choices are the most important thing, that choice is what defines us, and having the ability to choose is what makes us powerful. If you tell us that actually the ultimate power is in God's hands, that's not what we want to hear. Rightly or wrongly, we interpret that as a threat to our own autonomy, our freedom. So the best thing to do, I think, is to take your hypothetical scenario and think about it specifically in the biblical context. If you understand election and predestination the way the Bible lays it out, would it ever be possible for someone to want to follow Christ but be refused because they haven't been predestined? The Bible gives us teaching about election and predestination to answer a question. So it's important to ask what that question is. It concerns security, whether or not believers can have confidence in this life that they will be with God in the next. For example, you see this clearly in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, where Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, a believer might doubt whether things are going to turn out well, maybe worried because the world is so hard and their faith seems small. But Paul says that we can know it's going to work out, that circumstances are actually working toward our good. But the question is, how can we know? Well, to answer that, he introduces election and predestination. In the next verse, he writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God has always had a plan always had a goal that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And to achieve that goal, God predestined us to follow Jesus. All those things that God does from predestining to glorifying are like links in a chain. If you believe in Jesus, you've been justified. And if you're justified, then that means you can look back to before the beginning to election. And you can look forward into the life to come in glory and see that you are tethered to salvation by God's love. And my favorite example of the Bible giving us assurance through the doctrine of election is actually one of the briefest. At the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses his letter to the elect exiles. Now, because the believers are scattered like exiles, it would be easy for them to think that God had forgotten all about them and that their salvation was in doubt. But Peter calls them elect or chosen exiles, reminding them that God's faithfulness goes above and beyond 
their circumstances. Election answers another related question, too, which is, how do I explain my faith in Christ? Who should I credit for my salvation? The answer, of course, is God. Now, in salvation, you believe, you choose, you profess faith, you strive for obedience, you do all that. And yet the Bible says that all that doing is also God working in you. As Paul tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if it wasn't for God's work in you, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't choose, you wouldn't profess faith, you wouldn't strive for obedience. And if God is working in you, then you can be sure that, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if election and predestination is how we explain the ultimate source of our desire to follow Christ, then you can see that the hypothetical situation you're thinking about could never happen by definition. Because of our bondage to sin, none of us wants to repent and believe. Only the Holy Spirit working in us brings us to that point. So no one who awakens to faith and wants to follow Christ sincerely is ever prevented because they haven't been chosen. In fact, just the opposite. It's because of God's choosing, ultimately, that they awaken. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Caleb J. wants to know, how do we know that it's Job and not Job? Uh, Caleb, in English, this is quite a perplexing challenge because in any other circumstance, seeing the word spelled J-O-B, you would pronounce it job, as in you're going to work because you have a job. But Job is a figure in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, and the book of Job wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, and in Hebrew, the name of that wise man who suffered for his faithfulness to God is not the same word you would use to talk about, for example, your employment. Job is a transliteration from the Hebrew name, which in Hebrew would sound something like Eov, which is how we know the pronunciation of the name should be Job, not Job. And the name Job isn't connected to the word Job in any way apart from the spelling. And finally, Rosemary wants to know, why is the church memory verse so long? And why is the sermon so long? Well, Rosemary, the memory verse is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, and that's not actually very long. It's just a single paragraph and a really glorious one about who Jesus is. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, if you take one verse at a time, week by week, you'll be surprised how much you can remember. In fact, the more you memorize, the easier it is to memorize more things, to commit the words to your memory. Remember, actors in plays memorize a whole lot more than this. It's just that if we don't train our memories, then our memories don't work so well. So training yourself to memorize will actually improve your ability to remember more and more. As for sermons, you have to understand that a sermon is never too long and never too short. It's always exactly how long it needs to be. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.